This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the Headstuff Podcast Network, welcome to Motherfuck Lore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Derek O'Shea. Before we wrap up this podcast at the end of summer, there was a guest who I've been try- wanting to have on for a very long time. I'm absolutely delighted he's gracing us with his presence today. He has a very the, the definitive name in Irish podcasting, as, but as well as that, he has been very had a very important role in bringing back the the Dictionary of Hiberno English by Terry Dolan into more and more readers' hands. And so, please give a warm weather folklore welcome to Blind Boy Boat Club. Yart, what's the credit? <laughs> Great things. Hey, getting on today? Not too bad. Not too bad. Do you know, there's a word actually that I don't know the etymology of at all. Like Yurt. Yart, Yart is a, is a, it's a specific Limerick exclamation point that I started to hear on the north side of Limerick around 2001. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of popularized it around Ireland. Now people in Cork can say it. The, the early stuff with the rubber bandits. But I don't know the etymology of that word. Yeah, I, I I was wondering myself, and particularly when um, sometimes I'd see maybe Californians referring to these kind of uh, boutique tents as yurts, or as they understood them as an angle. That's 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 not what it yurt definitely, means. Yeah, definitely. When when we say yurt in Limerick, it definitely has nothing to do with a Mongolian tent. Although mm. there was circa twenty ten a brief like Limerick hipster resistance where certain people instead of saying yurt said Mongolian tent. Really? Yeah, very. <laughs> you'd, you'd hear it in like in in like a, a hip smoking area. And someone would go, yeah, that's cool, man. Mongolian tent. But it just doesn't work. Like, yurt is, is, you can mean it for anything. You can put a question mark on the end. You can put an exclamation mark on it. Saying Mongolian tent in, in everyday conversation doesn't work. It's like, um, do you know who I have a huge amount of respect for? Oh, yeah. Ow, old lads who pepper every third sentence with, with the help of God. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just like... Oh yeah, and I went down to Dunn stores there and I bought milk, but it wasn't there. But I managed to get uh, oat milk instead with the help of God. And then, and it keep, it's like, with the help of God, with the help of God. It's too long to be peppering sentences with it, but they go all in. <laughs> they go all in yeah. with the help of God, with the help of God. It's fantastic, isn't it? These, um, these little helper points, that points of fluency. And I guess it, it, everything we, we discussed before in the podcast, some of those um, details are actually um, indicators of additional fluency rather than what's received English, which can be quite deliberate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you get the same thing with like maybe those kind of uh, in French when a person, when a French person goes and uh, they add these kind of um, blurbs in, but but also they're they're frequent enough in Irish. 
And th- for me, those things are, it's, it's a way to pause in conversation to gather your next thought. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like saying like all the time. Now, people don't say that as much. There was a pandemic of like there about 10 years ago. It got very bad. And it did, yeah. There was because there was always this Irish like, particularly in, in Cork and in, in Munster in general, where people would say like a lot. And then when it became associated with Americanisms, um, there was, yeah, possibly a pushback then. There was a pushback. Remember, I never forget the great uh, 2007 pushback against the word "random," man. For about, <laughs> do you remember that? I fucking do, absolutely. What was that, man? And I used to get, f- I, like, I was younger, like, and I was, I was less uh, grounded in myself, so I'd get very bothered about people referring to everything as random, because it's mm. like it's not actually random. What do you mean by random? Like a random? What you mean is that this is surreal, or this is odd, or this is bizarre, or this is strange. It's not random. And mm. then round trees went balls deep. And and random had gotten so out of control mm-hmm. as a word. I, I associated it with Bebo. Roundtrees decides to release a bag of sweets where they just grabbed a bunch of shit. And now you're all, for, for adults, for millennials who were in their 20s at the time, here's a bag of sweets and it's got a shoe and it's got a tennis racket and there's a cat in there and it's Roundtrees randoms. Random guys, we're crazy. We don't know what mm. we're going to do. Yeah, it was. I do remember that, and I remember how irritated it would get certain uh, certain people. And I think now, I suppose there's. Um, I think you find the the word bestie has gone out of control. Um, you bestie, got, you see, I don't mind bestie. Be- why don't I mind bestie? I suppose is it being used passive aggressively? It's like the way Australians often say mate when they mean the opposite yeah. of mate. I, I, I can't. I, I'd need to be around a lot of the word bestie to get pissed off by it. But it's it's nice. It. As a word, you know the way some words just sound nice. Mm. Bestie sounds nice, although it it's a few. It's a few syllables removed from bestiality, so that could ruin it. <laughs> yeah, that's what wasn't quite the first thing that came to my mind, but yeah, yeah I was in that neighborhood. And speaking of that, uh, so last year, well, it was it was last year. God, who knows what what a year is anymore? I know um, it's twenty twenty two, man. In four months, I had um. Oh God, don't don't don't, don't even. <laughs> A while back, I had written an article about I, I was uh, when I was in UCD. I was a student of Terry Dolan, uh, a wonderful, wow. a, a wonderful lecturer, just that beloved by his students, just an absolute gentleman. And I, he, he was very good, particularly good in talking about Chaucer and mm-hmm. as well, and talking about Hiberno English. Canterbury Tales. Chaucer's your early English fella, isn't he? He certainly is. Yeah. Canterbury Tales, Wife of Bath, and all that and stuff, and how I suppose they're how satirical they were. And mm-hmm. he he made some interesting points about how people Canterbury Tales was about a pilgrimage, and um, but a lot of people went on pilgrimage to actually go on the lash and also to hook up. Yeah. Which, which and he was comparing that, which I thought was very funny. That when the initial flights to Lourdes came from in Ireland in the in one of the fifties or so, that a lot of people actually came back from 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 their trips to Lourdes with Johnny's from France. Yeah, and, and I tell you what, and I was only reading about this the other day, in, in the 13th and 14th centuries, when pilgrimages were massive, one of the most collectible items that used to be sold, especially on the Camino de Santiago, they used to sell little badges that uh, were fannies and willies. They were, <laughs> yeah, seriously, and people on Christian pilgrimages, they'd have uh, this really ridiculous, like, lead amulet and it had uh, someone riding a, a, an erect penis like a horse or it had another one and it was a fanny and these are the things that they used to pass around while on the Camino and now like people don't know why they were doing it now but it's probably like Terry Dolan was saying there people were having a bit of crack you know 
Absolutely, yeah. They're they're, yeah. they're, on, they're holidays. They're on, it was a fairly long a long holiday as well. But he he always injected a great bit of humor, and he he found ways of making um, lectures on something that happened centuries ago quite relevant to Ireland and to modern life. That's the way to do it. Introduce the story, introduce the narrative, and then all of a sudden something becomes very interesting. I did a podcast recently, ninety minutes talking about the history of Christ foreskin. Oh yes. And it was, I didn't think it was going to be interesting when I went into it, like, but Christ's force thing was a huge deal all through the, the Middle Ages. There was competing foreskins all through Christendom in, in, in Europe where, because it was seen as the best relic of all. It's like, here's Christ's actual foreskin. Mm-hmm. But the problem was, is that like the church couldn't decide. They're like, well, if Christ ascended to heaven, then how can you chop his foreskin off when he's a baby? What what happens to it? So they yeah. had to decide that the foreskin wandered around the world for 32 years and then at the moment of his actual death, the foreskin shot off into space and became the rings of Saturn. And that's, and that's the actual Catholic Church explanation to it. And then they got embarrassed by that explanation and the final relic that was considered to be the foreskin was, was like kidnapped by Jesuits in the 30s and now no one knows where it is. God, what, what would they do with it when they got it? Like, I mean, there's only so many things you can do with a foreskin. Mate, you could make a, a fetching collar for a ferret. <laughs> That'd be a good talking point down the pub. You bring your ferret down the pub and everyone's like, wow, this fella's got a ferret down the pub. What a great talking point. And you go, well, let me tell you about this collar. <laughs> it gets even more interesting there. You, mm. you thought he was just wearing a polo neck because he was, he was um intellectual ferret. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, Terry was like... um. I was, I was thinking about Terry again a couple of years ago when after Brexit, uh, it became, Ireland became effectively the de facto um, steward or um, he, custodian of the English language in yes, Europe. Yes, very interesting. And I was basically saying that this is, there was a time now we need to revisit the idea of, of an Irish English dictionary or Hiberno English dictionary yes. of some sort. Because here's the thing, man, if we, mm. if we are the main English speaking, we don't speak the Queen's English. We speak mm. Hiberno English. That's what we speak every single day of our lives. So why does this not become the English that we teach people from China? And wouldn't it's, it be hilarious? <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it, it, this is what I, I think. I mean, yeah, people have a general idea of Hiberno English as being you know, certain expressions and um, that maybe that that sound like they come from a person not speaking English correctly, and then but it's obviously larger than that because you think about, I mean, like say Canada and Australia and New Zealand all yeah. have their own like English their their own ways of of checking, um, you know, modern usage, new new words coming in, old old words kind of declining in use, and this just wasn't done in Ireland for a number of reasons, and. And Terry Dolan was very much effectively on a, on a one man mission to resolve that. He was he was filling a gap that what that should have been that should have been there. And then and then to add insult to injury, the book went out of, went out of print. Yeah, and I mean, it, like Hiberno English is one of those things that yeah we don't give it respect. We wouldn't. It's kind of like with, with I hate it when I hear people talking shit about Ulster Scots. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I hear people being very, very disrespectful to Ulster Scots and they make fun of it as a language. And it's like, who are we to decide if, if a dialect is silly or not? What, what makes a dialect not silly or silly? Because I, I think they call washing machines spinny things or something. Yeah. And then people laugh at that. And like, but why? Who says that that's silly? What, what defines silly? There's no such thing as silly in an evolving language. It doesn't exist. This is how 
a group of people effectively communicate with another group and it also reflects culture. So there's no such thing as silly. Yeah, very much. I think particularly because we've... Uh, um uh, I think a lot of Irish people who make fun of Ulster Scots will be very reluctant to make those same remarks about Lowland Scots. Okay. And, and are Lowland Scots and Ulster Scots, I'm guessing, are quite similar? Well, they'd be similar to a point. I mean, the, the understanding is from the Board of Ulster Scots is that the Ulster Scots is, is materially different. Uh, or it's significantly different to I me. Mean, I'd say they're they're mutually intelligible, but um, I think I, maybe it's not for me to say that. But I think, yeah. in terms of we we think of a piece of Ulster Scots writing, and a lot of in in Britain, you will find that Lowland Scots often gets the same sort of disrespect that Ulster Scots can get in Ireland uh, with its own agenda. And so, some of those jokes and jibes could be could be almost interchangeable but I think an Irish person would probably be quite relatively sympathetic to a a, a Lowland Scots speaker compared to yeah. most discussions sometimes yeah I, th- I think uh, I certainly try to have a degree of maturity around it and to give Ulster Scots respect you know mm. that it deserves rather than being if you start shitting on Ulster Scots you're being sectarian that's how I think about it you know and I don't think that's fair or right mm. and there's it, it definitely leads to clues about, I mean, I think my wife is from Antrim and a lot of this was the expressions she used would be from Ulster Scots rather than from yeah. Boke for uh, for throwing up. And which yes. I think is, it's so funny that that's, they call a 99er a poke. Wow. Okay. And it sounds, it's funny how it sounds so much like your word for vomit. They they call a 99 like the ice cream, a, a yeah, poke? A poke. Wow. I tell you what's interesting too. If you trace certain amounts of Ulster Scots to the southern states of America, mm-hmm. um, like Robert Burns as a poet, he'd be someone who would have written in Lowland Scots or borrowed from it, wouldn't he? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So if you look at uh, now, unfortunately, it's the, the incredibly, incredibly toxic type of stuff. Now where I'm talking in the southern states, but if you look at the lore of the Ku Klux Klan and how mm-hmm. they elevate the writing of Robert Burns even the phrase clan itself you can trace some of the language they use and and the customs and traditions all back to to lowland Scots and to that area of of the lowlands in Scotland some people have even said that the American use of the word y'all when they say y'all as in for for ye all Mm. that that there is like a an antiquated that that basically y'all was a word that was used frequently in the 16th 17th century then found its way to Appalachia and the people there were so isolated they just hung on to this word that we don't use anymore unless you're virtue signaling on Twitter and then you say y'all even though you're from, <laughs> you're from Monaghan uh, yeah that's um if, if yeah a few of those borrowed Americanisms are, are quite interesting and but the the I suppose Ulster Scots and along with some of the other minority languages and in Ireland have contributed to Hiberno English. And uh, this is something that 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 Terry kind of made makes quite clear in his dictionary and went which you brought up in in the forward. Yes. There's a nice article in the Irish language magazine Nose about you when you when you did oh, that. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. One I read that article, right, and there was there was one critique in there that I do agree with, which is uh it was a positive article, but he pointed out that when when the Hiberno English dictionary was published, which is written by Terry Patrick Dolan, it had my name on it, like huge on the front, as yeah. if I'd done something more than just added the forward. And just for anyone who read that article, just for me to say, I, I didn't like that either. And that wasn't <laughs> cleared with me. It was really embarrassing. It was really, really embarrassing because here was a piece of work that I had a lot of respect for. And I knew that how it started was like the thing with me on Hiberno English is so I don't speak a lot of a lot of Gaelga mm-hmm. because 
I, I was just a little shithead in school. Like mm. I really was a little arsehole in school. So I didn't really take advantage of my education. And then when I got to adult age where I'm like, wow, I should learn the Irish language. I just put all my time into learning uh, how to create music and all this different stuff. So I didn't get around to it. And it, I'd love to be able to speak Irish, but the next best thing is is Hiberno English. And it's mm. something I take a lot of pride in. And it's something that when I write, when I write my, my books, my fiction, the fact that I think in Hiberno English, it just naturally, it makes me good at writing. Because the thing is with Hiberno English is, is you're talking about the, the English language, but with certain grammatical flexibilities that are taken from the Irish language. So when you speak Hiberno English, you're consistently in a state of improvisation. Yeah. You don't have these strict rules. And that stands to me all the time when I'm writing English. So I found this Hiberno English dictionary written by Terence Patrick Dolan. And was trying to find a PDF. This was about two years ago. Was trying to find a PDF copy of it online. Couldn't even get that. And then I noticed, oh, it was published by Gill in like 1997. Gill happened to be the publishers of my books. So I rang up Gill, who I'm a published author with, mm. and said, have you any copies of that? And they're like, no, we literally don't. It's a dead book. And when yeah. I heard that, it broke my heart because like Hiber Hiberno English is important. It's ha it has its place. It's, I mean... It, it was just seemed silly. You think of something like uh, James Joyce, the most obvious example. James mm. Joyce is heralded the world over. Ulysses is seen as the, the finest example of, of modern English fiction. And it's like, it's, it's not English. It's written in Hiberno English mostly. And there's yeah. only one dictionary and it's out of print. So I said to Gil, listen, reprint that thing. All right. And I'll talk about it on my podcast. I'll po promote it on my social media. No hassle whatsoever. And then they said, will you write the forward? I says, I will, of course. And mm -hmm. then I forget about it. And then it arrives in my, in my fucking door. And it looks like I wrote the book. <laughs> and it looked oh, like yeah. I wrote the book. And it was really, really embarrassing for me, you know. Mm. But I understand well, what I did. And it probably, like, I went, okay, it probably sold a bunch of books because my name was on it and stuff mm. like that. But it was a little bit embarrassing. And it was, uh, uh, the, the forward that I wrote on it, and this is why Hiberno English was important to me personally. Mm -hmm. Not only does it inform how I write as, as a writer of fiction, because I find that when you speak and think in Hiberno English, it allows you a, a literary flexibility with words. I compared yeah. it a bit to, to jazz. I compared it to jazz music. Now, that's a stretch, but I view Hiberno English as a post-colonial language in that you try and impose the structures of the English language on a country that speaks and thinks as Gaelga and it's just it's not going to work perfectly the rows will grow from the concrete and you'll end up speaking English in a way that's acceptably hard as English but still borrows from the language that it was trying to replace and that reminds me a lot of jazz and blues music because if you think of blues and jazz so the western musical scale is quite structured right you've yeah. got a, A sharp, B, C sharp. It, it's rigid and structured and it's based on Pythagorean principles of what music is. And this is Western music. That's what a guitar is. That's what a piano is. It's this Western scale. But if you go to places in North and West Africa, especially around Mali, they mm -hmm. don't have the Pythagorean scale in music. They have a lot more notes. Now, to yeah. the Western ear, when you grow up listening to the Pythagorean scale, 
you can hear music from Mali in West Africa and it sounds out of tune. And it's like, it's not. It's not out of tune, it's just a different scale. And African-American music, such as the blues and jazz, what that is, is you have people because of slavery and colonization who are playing Western instruments like a guitar, but they're coming from the tradition of West African music. So what they have to do there is find an in-between the notes. And that's mm. where the bending of notes that we hear in jazz and blues are the slide and the slide guitar. It's how do I make this, the rigid structure of this Western instrument work for me as someone who musically is thinking in, in West African terms. And Hiberno English, I think, is a bit like that. Yeah, I you, think so. Yeah, you're using a fluidity. And the thing is, I don't speak Irish. I'm not a great Irish speaker, but yet I, I understand Hiberno English and the, and the flexibility. And also in the introduction, I give a little personal story about why it means something to me. Now, this could be fucking harsh shit. This could <laughs> be utter harsh shit. I've got, so I'd call it folklore. Yeah. But my dad used to say to me, and uh, my dad was from West Cork, and his dad was in Tom Barry's flying column in the IRA down in West Cork in the 1920s, and so were all his brothers. Yeah. So my grandfather used to say that, that Hiberno English, I don't think he was calling it Hiberno English, but the way that we speak English in Ireland, the way that we speak English in Ireland, we speak this way as a way to deliberately confuse that a population that was so thoroughly interrogated at every point of their life had to figure out a way to answer a question that's both yes and no at the same time because the wrong answer could mean death. So this is why you'll say something like, are you going to the shop? You are. Mm-hmm. You've just asked and answered the question at the same time. And my granddad used to say, that's how you had to speak to the British soldiers. You, if they asked you a question, you had to have an answer that would just make them go, fuck off, Paddy. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Just leave me alone. <laughs> so it was a deliberate way to confuse. And when you take that into the context of the penal laws, you take it into the context of the Irish language being an illegal language that you had to learn in hedge schools during the penal laws, it doesn't sound too bizarre that you might speak English in a way that allows you to evade continual interrogation and to become mm. confusing. There's a great video on YouTube and it's about 10 years old and it's called English people giving directions versus Irish people giving directions. Okay. And they asked these people in London, how do I get to Harrods down the road? And every person on the street says, Straight ahead, take a right, down left, there you go. Like, af- one after another. And then it cuts to some owl lad up the mountains in Kerry. And they mm-hmm. ask him, how do I get here? And the answer he gives is just mad. He just goes, well, you go up there, up, you go up there to the, to the top there now. But if you go there, you've gone too far. Now, if you take yeah. a right there, you could go into the town, which you could do if you wanted, but there's no point in doing that. But then you come back. Uh, no, no, you're not going that far down. Oh, all right. I only go down a few doors by there. Yeah. And you come to a red building. You can't miss the red bank, we call it. The red bank. And you turn left there. Okay. Pass up, that's the, the high street, you'd be there on your left, is what they call the high street there. Yeah. Well, you don't have to go up the high street, there's no need, you could if you like. Now, I understand it beautifully, and I think it's fantastic, and you've got this lovely narrative intertwined into a journey. But if you don't speak that way, it just sounds mad. Yeah. It's like, does this man want to help me or not? <laughs> Why is he giving me a multiple choice answer? That's the thing, because when you know the place well, there's more than one way to get there, and mm-hmm. there's, there's nice things on the way. 
Aren't the classic man? You know why yeah. didn't you, uh, when you turn into your estate and someone says why didn't you indicate? I'm sure everyone knows I live in there. My mother-in-law does that. She's like on Sunday she doesn't indicate because everyone knows she's going to mass. <laughs> I there's a dualism in Irish thinking which <laughs> I relate to Hiberno English. I mean the other one is is uh, like the lines on the road, man. Hmm. You've got single yellow lines which mean don't park. Then you've got double yellow lines which means definitely don't park. Yeah, it's. It's almost like you beat the, it's almost like the, the concept of law is based on the idea that you expect people are expected to break it, and the, yes. that that was something that was kind of the, the penal laws were written in, in a sense that we know these laws are intentionally unfair, and we whereas you know most kind of laws are based on the fact this is you know this is where the line is, this is where the line is you know cross, but there's almost an expectation that you're supposed to you know wander along the edge of the line between right and wrong or legal and illegal sometimes, and which is which is beautiful when you take it in the context of we'll say the folk heroes from the, the penal laws but it's it's no crack when like remember when the when, when the Irish government there last year released its five point plan for COVID so we were all mm. waiting for right okay come on government give us some guidelines give us some directions so the government do a huge press conference and they say here are the five stages of COVID and how we respond depending on severity and then they said great where are we now well Dublin right now is three and a bit <laughs> And they did it I without remember, irony. It's, I remember it's, the, 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 it's five points, but there's actually many little points between the points. Yeah, 3.1 or three and a half. And it was heartbreaking, but it was beautiful as well, because that's what we're talking about right here. The fact that politicians would turn around and say, here's a five point plan, but actually right now we're at three and a bit. Can you imagine a German doing that? <laughs> no, I'd absolutely no. I'd say I'd say they, they, they Germans probably had a two point plan. They'd be sent, they'd be shot into space. <laughs> Yeah, they wouldn't be managed to that. So it's the dictionary has been has has had great success since since it's been republished, and mm-hmm. I think and um, you very very rightly got some got have received some praise and some credit for your your role in bringing this to people's light. And I, I know there's lots of people who ha- will have this received this for Christmas or bought it themselves in that yeah. time, and I'm sure that they will be very grateful for your efforts there. Um, what I enjoyed about the book as well was was so a real eye opener for me. Mm-hmm. as a Limerick person, is finding out how much Hiberno-English words that I use that are actually from Shelta or Kant, from yeah. Irish indigenous traveller languages. I would have grown up saying, referring to women as Bjors, referring to the police as Shades. These are words from, from Kant or Shelta, yeah. which I hadn't a clue about at all until I started opening up this book. One thing I also put in the introduction, and it's something that I wish Terry Dolan was alive but I'm interested to see wh- what happens to Hiberno-English with immigration from, from different uh, countries. Also, like I know right now, th- there's languages being spoken in, in the horrors of direct provision centres yes. that are a, a mixture of various, uh, might, might have some African dialects in there, you might have some Syrian, and then also English. And there's people, I don't know what you call, I suppose you'd call it a pigeon dialect. Mm-hmm. Is it a, what is it? There's what's it? There's a pigeon and a creole. It's a pigeon. I think a pigeon is a pigeon is right up there. And it's a creole yeah. then when your kids speak it, isn't it? That's that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Cre- so yeah. it's pigeon dialects, which I would love to hear Terry Dolan's how he would include these within Hiberno English, or are we hearing them? When will we start hearing them being spoken in a, in everyday use in Ireland? 
it is, I suppose, it's interesting to see what, how the, the process by which words enter the dictionary, uh, and particularly through speech. And generally, like, um, I mean, I think, well, in the in the nearly twenty or so years when we've had a large Polish community in Ireland, I'm not sure how many Polish words have become kind of a uh, have entered the dictionary. Possibly, the, people know the Polski sklep um, in yeah. their on their street, and they might know that. And I know when I was looking into the the Irish words for spaghetti and pizza and how they arrived in, mm-hmm. or it's the Hiberno English, how they entered Hiberno English. Generally, you find that um, f- food words tend to tend to travel in a fairly one one, one way direction. Uh, that usually there's one yeah. community making food and another community eating it. There's a woman in Dublin, and now I know her. She won't mind me saying it, but she's in mm. her forties, and her name is Lasagna. You serious? No, she, she, she doesn't use the name Lasagna. She uses her middle name. But her mm. parents went over to Italy in the 1970s and saw the word Lasagna or heard it and were like, what a beautiful name. And they came home and called their daughter Lasagna. <laughs> my, uh, sometimes my phone used to autocorrect my daughter's name, La Serena, to Lasagna. And <laughs> so hopefully that won't be a nickname in school for her. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it is interesting how, yeah. how food, food does that in particular. Yeah, um, d- what what about Yola? The yeah. di- you, you, are you in any way familiar with Yola, the dialect that's it's we, dead we, now, but it, it is Yola, and I know there was a Fingalian as well, and yes, was, which and they they've, they've appeared to be almost um, yeah, they have they've left very little trace at all, which is a um, in that queer bit. queer. So I did a full podcast on the word queer. So the, the the only word we still use in every day in Hiberno English that is Yola is queer, and for I, people who don't know, Yola is. It was a mixture of early Norman French, mm. a little bit of early English, and then Guelga as well, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I think that's kind of how, um, you know, Gassoon came into Irish and English yeah. from, our, well, from Garçon of French, and that would have been how it was pronounced locally then. Yes. And that that's there, but it's, um, I suppose. That but even the, names the like, like Fitzgibbon, Fitzgerald. Like we think of these names as that's an Irish name, and it's like it's it's Fitz comes from Fee, the French for son. Yeah. So you you that that right there is your compromise between early Norman French and, and Irish. And yeah, it's it's uh, it is an interesting thing of those words coming at the same times. And but yeah, the, I guess there was no one, nobody to stand up for y'all as as well as declining, and maybe Irish was um, Irish had a tradition of activism and possibly in. Which may have been provoked from the actual pro- processes of people trying mm-hmm. to destroy it, and maybe that that just wasn't the case in Fingalian, which gradually just got absorbed into uh, into the English language being used around it. Like um, mm-hmm. you think of the house Stony Batter, that the batter part comes from Boher in Irish, and at one point they're pronouncing that Boher with a hard T. Were they? Yeah, Stony Batter is interesting, man. It sounds like uh, a better name for concrete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't it just yet it's, uh, it's, it's I love that like I've, I've often up in Dublin just going what the heck is this like where, where is Stony Batter as well isn't that the place where a lot of the streets are named after Vikings yes very much so so what what is Stony Batter mean is it is it an anglicization of, yeah. of a Gaelic word or, or? yeah it, it's, it's a bit of a mix and that Stony obviously Stony and Batter it would have been road so it would have been a Stony road at one point ah and okay. so the the but for some reason yes the uh, the ba, the boher got pronounced as batter and that's probably a, a hangover from a, a small bits of evidence of Dublin Irish and that may very well be part part of that. There's uh, there's a few other little uh, Dublin Irish uh, words we generally think of you know the the three county chief but but there were there obviously were more than that before and Dublin would have had its mm-hmm. own dialect. 
But that was um, would that have been like a dialect of the pale now? Yeah, there, there would have been a certain amount of Irish, I suppose. In I suppose Stony Batter would have yes been slap bang in the pale. Yeah, because like because like Dublin and the pale and Kildare were effectively under a stricter British rule for longer. Mm-hmm. The way that words are spoken there had to have been different compared to we'll say out in the west where up until the 15 1600s was effectively not really under British control. Yeah, it's it's I mean there's um yeah, the, obviously that 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 there's there's patterns to how um the how Irish survived in some of those areas as well. You think about how um and I often think about how Flann O'Brien was his opinions on the Irish language revival uh, were, yeah. were, were clearly influenced by the fact he was from one of the Irish language communities that wasn't, yes. I guess, protected or saved in that. I suppose it was on the on, on the other side of the border. That's and one of the things there that breaks my heart about not uh, understanding Irish is buddies of mine who are fully fluent in Irish, they say mm-hmm. to me that I fucking love Flann O'Brien. Like Flann O'Brien yeah. is, is my favourite writer. And my buddies just say to me, you can try and read on Vale Vucht, but like you, you need to read that in Irish because he has interplays with words there and they just don't translate. Yeah. Neither this um yeah, that's the thing is it's and it it is a relatively short book and I think that's probably a good target for um for Irish learners to aim for. That you get you get to enjoy Flann O'Brien and and um, on Bell Booked in the original Irish if you can get yourself this good. The World According to Wikipedia is a podcast that pops the hood of Wikipedia and invites you to take a look inside. Each episode, we will talk to someone from the Wikimedia community on topics like why are only 18% of biographies about women? Can editing Wikipedia be a protest or activism? And what is it like for the communities working on the 200 plus Wikipedias that are not in English? Subscribe on your podcatcher of choice and follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia. So, I mean, Flan O'Brien is obviously a big influence on you. Oh, massive, massive. Um, Flan, for me, so how did I, so first off, the reason I got turned on to Flan, because we have to, we have to remember that Flan was not a big deal. Hmm. Um, Flan, that the revival of Flan O'Brien is something maybe 20, 25 years old. Yeah. And throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, Miles Nagopoulin would have been remembered for his Irish Times uh, column, but yeah. Flan's writing, this really would have, would have been out of print. And the reason Flan was present in my childhood is that Flan O'Brien's brother, Fergus, happened to be my childhood doctor in Limerick. Oh. Yeah. So, and, and bizarrely, now he was, a, he was my pediatric doctor until I was about one or two. And bizarrely, which I find so beautifully, surreally, Flan, he said to my ma when I was in the pram, that young fella's going to grow up to be absolutely gorgeous and he'd be so gorgeous he'd be famous for it. And I grew up to be famous for having a fucking bag in my head. <laughs> but Flan's, Flan's brother, Flan's brother was, Flan O'Brien's brother was my family doctor and he appeared to be kind of had the same eccentricities as Flan did. Like he called around to my dad in the 60s before people knew that cigarettes were bad kind of. Yeah. And and he had an idea that cigarettes were bad. So he lectured my dad for like an hour about how he needs to give up cigarettes and then asked for a cigarette as he left. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Which is pure Flan. But yeah, because Flan O'Brien's brother was my family doctor and he was not only a family doctor, he was a family friend as such. My ma used to absolutely adore him. My ma describes him as someone who would have been a feminist long before feminism. He really... Um, 
he he really cared for for women patients and saw things from the point of view from a female perspective. That's what she said about him, yeah. especially around pregnancy and things like that. He 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 had an empathy and he was closer to a counselor. She used to go to him for a pain in her knee and end up staying for a half an hour to speak about what was bothering her emotionally, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I, I I ended up saying that to his sons actually because I was at the Flann O'Brien International Conference as a speaker there a couple of years ago, but because of this my my family kind of felt embarrassed that like oh his brother's a writer so th- we started getting Flan's books into the house yeah so that you weren't being rude to the doctor when he spoke about his brother so everyone in my family turned into this huge fans of Flan O'Brien and a lot of the humour I grew up with in my house would have been influenced by Flan O'Brien humour hmm. so when I was three my brothers and my dad would be telling me about people cycling bicycles and turning into bicycles because of atomic theory and all of this this was <laughs> Discourse in my house. Yeah. So that's how I came in came into Flan. And it was only when I was about so when I was about nineteen and I knew I, I knew in my heart that like I'm gonna be an artist. I'm gonna be either a musician or I'm gonna be a writer, but I know this is what I wanna be. Yeah. And when you're that age, art can really, really impact you heavily. Art can make you very, very emotional if you're artistically sensitive. Yeah. And I was listening to Tom Waits, Bob Dylan we'll say. And when you're first here an artist like that, it would just take over my day. It would just be, wow, the, the beauty of these artists is so profound. But because Tom Waits and Bob Dylan were Yanks, yeah. I just didn't feel that like I could never do, so, I, I could never participate in what they're doing. I could never attempt or try. But when yeah. I read fucking Flan, I'm like, holy shit, this fella here is just as much of a genius as Tom Waits or Bob Dylan. And he thinks and speaks like me. He, he All he's doing, he's writing the way I think. The jokes that he's saying, that's just Irish humour. And it made the possibility of becoming a professional creative seem accessible to me. Yeah. And it always reminds me then of the importance of representation. Because I'm there down in Limerick as a, like a straight white man. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I hear Flan O'Brien and that opens it up for me. And I'm going, wow, well, well, what's that like then for someone who doesn't see representation in either their gender or, or their colour or their ethnicity or whatever in art around them, you know? And yeah. how seeing, how, how experiencing the work of someone who's like you all of a sudden opens the gates of possibility to participate. Absolutely. And I felt, would have felt the same way. I mean, having an unusual Irish name and mm-hmm. growing up and then seeing when, when Sinead O'Connor didn't, didn't change her name to become a pop yeah. star. Um, the first father and, and, and top of the pops, I think. Fuck me. Really? Think about it. Like who, who before her, you know, uh, it was. Yeah, you're dead right. Before her, anyone who was um, Irish stars would always have used um, used uh, stage names. I mean, the, uh, other stars too. Obviously, you know, uh, George Michael would have um, hidden his Greek heritage, and Freddie Mercury too. His, um, his Indian but, but even but, the English man, Elvis Costello is Declan McManus. Yeah, uh, and J- Johnny Marr from the Smiths is John Maher. And yeah, Stephen and, Patrick Morrissey. It's just, yeah, we can drop it down to one name. Those and obviously Johnny Rotten too. And of course, and fucking man. The, ma- the most Irish name possible. It's so Irish, I can't even remember it. Dusty Springfield. 
Was it o- Bridget O'Grady. Mary? What, what was her name? I think uh, Bridget Mary O'Grady, wasn't it? I think it's even more extravagant than that. It, it's like triple barreled. <laughs> Hold on two seconds. Uh, Mary Isabel Cather- Catherine Bernadette O'Brien. Oh, that's, that's like, gold. Come on. <laughs> and then an, an OBE at the end now. Gosh, yeah, that's, uh, you, can't re- you can't get much more Irish than that name, that's, that's for sure. That's amazing, man. That's amazing. So, so I think, yeah, when, when, once Sinead O'Connor actually did, didn't change her name to something that sounded more stagey, it was a, uh, it, it probably, it, it did feel that maybe, yes, if I was to grow up, I wouldn't have to change my name. And I, I suppose it felt a little bit the same about Arnold Schwarzenegger as well. He actually tried changing his name briefly in the 70s before, yeah. before deciding to commit. But as well, you have uh, Charlie Sheen, like his brother is Emilio Estevez. Yeah. And Emilio Estevez was like, I'm going to hang on to the Spanish name. But then the Sheens were like, no, we need something different. It's, I, I thought that was interesting because, yeah, is, uh, Ramon Estevez is um, Charlie Sheen's real, or yeah. that's, that's the father, it's, it's Car- he's Carlos Estevez and it is Charlie Sheen and Ramon is, is, is Martin Sheen's full name. It, I think, I know sometimes when, when, when siblings are, are famous, they often don't, sometimes they don't, they don't want to yeah. draw attention to the fact that they're kind of, they're trading on a, um, on a family resemblance or I think obviously that, that was like Nicolas Cage didn't want people to just you know see his surname and yes and connect because he's Fra- Francis Ford Coppola's son or something isn't he nephew I think nephew and but yeah he moved with Nicholas Coppola and that's I think he may have made a, a film under that name before deciding no it's um he, he was just going to auditions and just talking about his uncle and then not, not getting a call back there's a it was an interesting phenomenon as well in in America from about 1910 to 1925 where people would Jewish names would change their names to Irish names. In particular, gangsters. So Jewish gangsters might change their name to like O'Banion or something like that because Mm -hmm. it just... Irish gangsters had it better because so many Irish cops were around. And then also, because I did a podcast on this before, do you know the way, like, when you listen to pop music now, as a given, the majority of pop singers will sing with an inflection that's African-American, that's inspired by R&B. It, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. So that's that's like a given now. Like you listen to, I don't know, Justin Timberlake or even Billie Eilish now. They speak with an inflection that's inspired by African-American art forms. If you listen to pop music in America, circa 1910 to about 1922, everyone's singing with fucking Irish accents. Hmm. Um, yeah. Inspired mainly by John McCormack, who was from, uh, not Atlunkard. Where was he from? Uh, he was Atlone, isn't he? That's the Atlone. Yeah, all that stuff's named after him around there. There's lots of Ken yeah. McCormack stuff. So John McCormack, he sang with an Irish accent. And as a result of that, there's a huge amount of pop music around the 1910 to 1925. And you'd have fellas called Harvey Hindermeyer hmm. and they're singing like they're from Athlone. And this was just <laughs> a given. It was amazing because the, the a huge uh, consumers of pop music at that time were Irish immigrants. And a lot of the popular songs were about... Killarney about back home you know mm. like what one in three people in New York was Irish like it's as simple as that it was huge and that's what there was there was a massive market and mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the things I thought I, this hasn't there's there's multiple theories on this one but ever since um most of the, the, the biggest um, pop music factory in the world happened to be in Stockholm like and the way pop singers say may instead of me like that's how they say yeah. me in Swedish very good wow but, 
whether that's an absolute slam dunk, I know there's other people say there's there's other explanations for why um, Justin Timberlake and other singers would go May. It's got to be May. Or and, well, but, if you trace that directly back to, we'll say, okay, hit me, hit me, baby, one more time, Britney Spears, where she definitely says May. That mm. was written by that Swedish pop Max, team that you're talking Max about. Max Martin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that was a big deal. <laughs> I wonder if what's, if Swedish people actually think that or not, or if they discuss it much. But it's certainly, I suppose, it's a it's something that fascinates me and. Apparently, uh, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, spoke uh, English in an Irish accent. I heard this, uh, and, and that he had he learned from he had a teacher from Rathmines, and yeah. but perhaps more fascinatingly, Che Guevara had his Limerick accent. Yes, I heard <laughs> that. Isn't that mad? <laughs> it really is. I keep. I, I know um, friend, uh, an uncle of, of a friend of mine was uh, was working in the in the airport. And I think he, he actually uh, when he stopped over on his way to Moscow, he he, he spoke to the the airport reunion. Yeah, and they were, and he had. I mean, he had something. I'm not sure how good his English was, but he may have, he's possibly pronounced one or two words lim- uh, with a Limerick accent. And who who's, who can contradict them now? And do we know who his teacher was? Because I I did hear a similar thing mm. about uh, not Lenin, but like Russian royalty before the revolution. There was some family who were like the royals in Russia, and their teacher was from Limerick. Mm-hmm. And I heard that too. Interestingly, with uh, one of my bizarre childhood stories is, so my dad used to work out in Shannon Airport, you know? Yeah. And he he was working there since the, the 60s. And the thing with Shannon Airport, and we forget it, is is up until about the 1980s, if any flight in the world needed to go from Europe to America, it had to stop in Shannon Airport. It was yeah. as simple as that. Like, even the concept of duty-free was invented around this. So they used to have this VIP room in Shannon, and anytime anybody from Che Guevara to the Pope to Lenin to Bob Dylan, if they arrived in Shannon, which they simply did if they were going transatlantic, they went yep. to this VIP room. So then one day in like 1989, they were throwing out the carpet from the VIP room. And my dad ran up and said, can I have that carpet? Because it's a lovely carpet. So mm-hmm. they said, fuck it, grand, it's going into a skip. So my dad took the Shannon Airport VIP carpet and put it in my living room at home. And then when I was a kid... <laughs> When I was a child in school, I used to consistently get in trouble by claiming that Michael Jackson and the Pope were in my living room. But it was a fact. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, they were on the carpet. It's a fact. There's I still have a right square there. of it. I still have a square of it. It's now, it's now in the boot of my ma's car for a dog to sit on. God. <laughs> but it's the most famous carpet in the world. It must be. They got to the stories that carpet could tell. Yeah. That's pure, pure mad stuff, isn't it? So I was thinking last year, do you remember when, um, when there was a bit of a controversy around normal people? And yes. there was an episode of Liveline when there was some a, a, a huge amount of interest in the way the, the, the callers made, made some very interesting remarks. It was a incredible piece of radio. And a lot of people were saying that this was the best episode of Liveline since you were on with Willie O'Dea and a few other people commenting <laughs> about Horse Outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I remember hearing live. And I think it was one of the first times I followed a radio interview on Twitter. And it was kind of the, it was it was still a new medium to me. And it was... That was an extraordinary, extraordinary okay, piece well, of radio. What, what do you think? What do you think of Willie O'Dea's support? I, I think, I think it's just it's, it's unreal. Fair play to Willie, and thanks for supporting it. That's great. Like anyone who's got a complaint about the video or the song, like your man Anthony there who's talking away, what he needs to do, someone needs to give that man a dictionary, and he needs to look up the word irony. Anthony, 
absolute joke. Look, exactly, as, it's an absolute joke. Lady, you put it well there yourself, Ken. the other lady on the phone said, I mean, I'm all for humour, etc. But when you're bringing in about children and house parties and drugs and all that, it's a disgrace. All right, all hold right. on a second now, right. Okay, the line you're referring to about children and house parties and okay. drugs, right? You're looking at it literally as that line is the absolute truth. What's not being looked at is the subtext. So, first of all, the line that's coming out of the man's mouth, you need to look at that man. Look the way he's talking, the way he's dressed, the way he's carried on. Is he a reliable man? Do you think that drinking and drugging did him any harm? Look at him in the video. I'd say it did him quite a bit of harm. It is not a statement promoting drug use with children or anything like that. It's actually quite the opposite. But unfortunately, it's being looked at literally. You're not supposed to look at art literally, man. If you look at the film American History X with Edward Norton, where he's a racist, if you look at that literally, then you might as well call around to Edward Norton, the actor's house, and call him a racist. It's, it's about metaphor. It's about art. It's about different viewpoints creating the meaning behind it. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, Absolutely not. Like, It was, it was good, crack because... It's so I basically went on to, to Joe Duffy and I explained like postmodernism and context and intent and I, I spoke about the mechanics of, of art and what art is and I unashamedly said that like horse outside is a deliberate attempt at a piece of art mm-hmm. and I don't think Joe Duffy or the listeners expected that because it would have been at the height of Limerick would have had quite a bad image at the time Limerick yeah. would have been represented very poorly in the media at the time and we kind of, when we started out circa 2007, 2008, when we were making rap music and stuff as the Rubber Bandits, we were aware that Limerick has, the, there's two Limericks. There was the Limerick you experienced when you lived there, and yeah. then there was the one you read about in the paper. And they were massively different because the paper liked to sensationalise the fear and violence. Whereas when you lived in Limerick, you went, some shit is happening, but it only affects about 100 people as such and it was just we we always knew hyper realism was my thing i was obsessed with the philosopher jean baudrillard and his mm. essay which says the gulf war didn't happen and i was like what do you mean the gulf war didn't happen and he's like well there was two gulf wars there was an actual conflict that happened in iraq and then yeah. there was the hyper real representation of it that played out in the media and the gulf war that we mostly know is the one that was edited and presented to us through the spectacle of television and the media. And that always fascinated me. And I always felt that, oh, there's two limericks. There's the limerick you live in, and then there's the one that's edited and presented through the spectacle of Dublin media that needed to have a whipping boy. So the early bandit stuff was a way to play upon that, play upon people's prejudices about limerick, and then do something really surreal, borrowing from Flann O'Brien, and flip it on its head so people question it. But I don't think the people on Liveline knew that that's what I was about. So when I started speaking articulately about the mechanics of art, mm. they were just like, what the fuck is this? What's going on here? Some people think I actually set it up. It was such a perfect um, piece of comedy where like with comedy, you always have the straight person and the bizarre person and the interaction between these two. Yeah. Because the people on Liveline, that callers were so clueless. And they didn't expect me to be in any way articulate. It just worked perfectly when I was able to speak about art with them um, with passion. It was a, it was an extraordinary. I, I just remember listening to the time. It was, it was just a brilliant piece of radio, and I'd like to think that a lot of people listening learned about it. The idea of 
I guess of the hyper real. And mm-hmm. I, I always think about how in films, when, when someone has a bad dream, they wake up sitting up and gasp and no one who has, and we've all had bad dreams. None of us mm-hmm. have done that, but we all expect that because yeah. we're, and, we see it. And when about like, pin, do you ever have a bad dream and wake up and pinch yourself? It's like, no, no, <laughs> that's something that happens in films. Yeah. This is one of those things. And, and it's the, yes, the idea of the, and I suppose at, at that point, did you think talking about a range of topics in in a way that's that's worse from comedy to you know informational about art and conversation? Well, did you did you what were you already thinking about making a podcast at that point? Um, I should have started a podcast around 2011, 2010. I was quite late to the podcast world. Um, mm. for me, so I went back and did a master's degree in 2015. Yeah, and. Because I, I had my qualification in art and I had half a qualification in psychology. And I went back and did a master's degree in uh, participatory art with a focus on critical theory. And critical theory basically is like using things like postmodern theory, um, anarchist theory, but taking all these different critiques and dissecting culture or post-structuralist yeah. theory. So that's what I studied. And when I started the podcast, I was kind of realising, wow, there's an element of academia that's actually really, really fun. Like the, yeah. the work of Roland Barthes, semiotics, you know, he, he would look at something like the phenomenon of, of wrestling and he'd tear it apart from an academic point of view. And it's actually loads of fun. But the thing is, being in academia is no fun at all. It's really, really not fun. Mm. So the podcast for me was, why don't I take some of the things I learned in my master's around critical theory and then in a very non-serious, fun way, apply some of that to whatever comes into my mind each week and let people know that, I, okay, I do have a, a, a bit of an academic backing in this, but it's a hot take. Don't take me too seriously. I'm having fun with culture and ideas here for entertainment. I want yeah. my, my podcast is, I want to entertain people. Yeah. I want to look at history. Or I want to look at an aspect of culture. And then I want to put my fiction hat on and I want to present people with the most interesting version of that for entertainment. And it's really worked. You've got a, a huge following now. It's and hitting 30 million now, which is fantastic. And it's it's bigger outside of Ireland than it is in Ireland, which is did not expect that at all. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously gone way, way beyond your expectations. And mm. do you find as you've as you've done it, you're kind of the that you that the the concept of the show has evolved in, in, in suppose, in reaction to the fact that you realise you have a large international audience and... Uh, I you... try not to think of that. Mm. So the thing is, is that I have to remind myself, so this, the, my podcast became popular because I didn't expect it to succeed. I really didn't. I, I was, my plan was I'm going to do four episodes to possibly promote my book. Yeah. Um, because I, I'd, I'd released my, my book of short stories at the time. I didn't think that was going to become as successful as it did. So, and as well, when I record it, it's it's intimate. It's just me on my own and with a microphone. And I learned this in my music career. The reason the Rubber Bandits was successful 10 years ago is because it was just two friends trying to make each other laugh. Yeah. And when you can do that successfully, people want to be in on the joke because there's an authenticity to it. But once you start thinking... What does Kevin up in Longford want? Yeah. Or what does Sheila down in Kerry want? Once you start thinking like that, you've lost your uh, creative locus of control. So I can't do that. I have to try and be uh, authentic and go, this week I'm going to make a podcast about what I liter- what I give a shit about. 
And if I do that, then it works. If I start thinking, what do people want me? I kind of did it this week. So many people had asked me to talk about um, Lynx Africa and Teenage Discos that I said, fuck it, I'm going to do it, but I'll do it in my own way. Yeah. You know, um, I, I lean into that and make sure I do it in my own way. So I just, I, I just, I, I do it for me. I mean, one thing I always, I did a podcast before on what I think podcasts are. Yeah. And one thing I always found fascinating is, so Samuel Beckett's got this play from 1953 called Crap's Last Tape. Oh, yes. I know it well. Yeah. And the thing with Beckett is like, Beckett was all about absurdity. You know, uh, absurdity being understanding that life is meaningless, but yet searching for meaning within that meaningless. And the in-between there is your absurdity. So Beckett was all about his absurdity. So in 1953, Beckett figured, well, what's more absurd than a grown man sitting down on his own with a tape recorder, recording his own thoughts on his own for an hour, and then listen back to it when he's an old man. This to Beckett was like, this is bizarre, so I'm going to make a play, a play out of it. Yeah. And now that's just a podcast. That's just normal now. And I always find that fascinating. It is. I mean, since you and I have started podcasting, it's been become a, a fairly big deal in our Irish people have really responded to it and yeah. as we were talking about earlier about representation and um and people finding you know they um and and the, the power of, of hearing of what someone like yourself in mm-hmm. doing doing well like accent diversity and other kinds of diversity yes. in Irish podcasting has been a, a huge thing I mean um, yes maybe often you found maybe that um you didn't hear a lot of Limerick accents on the radio yeah and you don't. You didn't hear any Limerick accents, man. Like mm. the, the Limerick accents are so poorly represented on media. People sometimes think I put my accent on. They they like they don't believe it. But mm. like if you hear Cork people get away with it. I don't yeah. know why a Cork accent. Now I do love the Cork accent. Cork sounds like they sound like Limerick people who've received good news, and <laughs> that's that's the Cork. It's fantastic. Mm. But Jesus, I can't think of. Like anyone who had, uh, what's his face? Vincent Brown, he's from County Limerick. Yeah. But that's not a, a Limerick City accent. You don't, you don't hear that. It's, it sounds very strange and bizarre to people. And my accent is, is that's probably people's first real hearing of what a, a Limerick, my, my Limerick City accent isn't even strong, it's neutral. It'd mm-hmm. be the equivalent of uh, Ronan O'Gara's Cork accent. Yeah, it's, and and this is the thing, I, th- I found that it was um, like, a, it, it's something that really surprised people, but I think it's one of the things people responded to. And also, I suppose there was, um, you've probably found that um, we were so used to thinking that the, the radio we had in Ireland was, um, you know, presented certain p- positions and ideas. And it, I think the, the amount of, I guess, of new ideas that, that found when, when information was set free, that the things that people were talking about, people wanted even more kind of, um, I guess, um, confrontational news stories or more, maybe. Yeah. They they were more, much more interested in left wing ideas and yes. cultural ideas than people have been given credit for. Um, we were we're so we were so used to being told, oh, everybody wants to hear you know these particular songs, and they don't like to be kind of um, challenged in the morning by kind of a, by shocking stories, and they they find these these a- angry kind of voices off putting, and that and the fact that when people went out and made made their own made their own radio through podcasting, they. And this advice wasn't taken, but it flourished. Exactly. And what, what you've described there is it's, it's, there's a Marxist uh, philosopher called Althusser, and mm. he describes the, the ideological state apparatus, which is 
you've got the, I think it's called the restrictive state, state apparatus, which is like police, the army. Then there's another one, which is like judges and stuff. But you have the ideological state apparatus, which is entertainment, uh, religion, the school system. And what we were hearing through traditional media is the ideological state apparatus. This is a form of media that doesn't change, isn't very left wing. And then podcasts come around and it's a direct challenge to that ideological state apparatus. And then you find out, wow, this is what people actually want to listen to. The other thing with podcasts, now it's changing now a bit, unfortunately. Hmm. I think the golden age of podcasting is on the way out. People who listen to podcasts will say pre-pandemic, these are people who are sick of listening to traditional media. And they're like, I I don't want to be spoon-fed whatever's on the radio. I actually want to seek out for myself something that I like. And that makes listening to a podcast quite a a participatory act. You're seeking out this podcast and giving it your full attention. You're not just sitting back and listening to whatever the radio DJ is saying. Yeah. But podcast right now, there's a huge amount of money being pumped in from large corporations. So the Mm. podcast market is becoming quite saturated and it's becoming a lot like mainstream radio. Also, what's happened is because podcasting is being promoted on mainstream radio, the audiences that used to listen to radio are now coming to listen to podcasts. So the space is a little bit, a little bit murky. It's ultimately a positive thing, but a general yeah. rule with anything beautiful and creative is that money figures a way out, a way to fuck it up eventually. Yeah, but I think there's there is definitely something in there, and I mean what. We do a motherfucker and what you do that you couldn't put this on, on between maybe uh, eight and nine on on on, on, a, on a radio no. station because yeah it, it's a, it's completely different. Is it? You want form. long form. Yeah. You want long form, and you want what I compare it to, and this is a horribly fucking hipster comparison, but I, <laughs> I I I sometimes refer to podcasting as it's it's craft media. Yeah. So if if you go to a, a microbrewery, when you sit down there and you order a pint. They are able to say to you, this pint of beer, I'm going to tell you everything about this pint of beer. There's John over there. He made it behind the bar. There's the actual vat of the beer. And then they give it to you and you're presented with a beer that's strange and weird and might have some bits floating in it. It has imperfections, but you're okay with these imperfections because it's authentic and someone really cared about making it. But then you have your mass produced beer, which is perfect every time, but it's a little bit boring. So yeah. podcasts are like that. The important thing for a podcast, for me, if I'm listening to it, does the person who made this really give a shit about what they're making? And if they do that, I don't give a fuck what they're talking about. What I want to hear, I want to empathize with their passion. Mm. You know? Definitely. I'm still hopeful that, I mean, I think I'm still hopeful that there's, um, you know, there's new podcasts and ideas. I think it's, it, it will evolve to the next stage. I just I don't want them getting drowned out. I don't want yeah. those. I, I, honest to God, if I released my podcast today, I don't think it would have succeeded. It yeah, would be that's... too drowned out. There's too much noise. There's too much podcasts that have money behind them. I released a podcast at a time when you had yourselves releasing podcasts. There was like, Irish history podcast. They were smaller podcasts for an Irish podcast audience. And Mm. it really wasn't mainstream. Like I used to go onto Facebook in 2018 and say, here's this week's podcast. And most of the comments were, what's a podcast? (laughs) You know, so it's not a niche thing anymore. But within that niche environment, you had all these small podcasts that everyone was passionate about. They'd be like, Irish history podcast, man. 
Yeah. Like I literally, I found that in 2013 because I typed Irish history into the podcast results. I yeah. don't think I'd have found that now. They would have fed me something different that had an advertising budget. Yeah, that's that, that. This is that's definitely a risk now that you, yeah the, the commercial ones get ahead, and it's um and I think there's also probably an issue is that I I think about how you know we think about how Clive James revolutionised the way TV criticism was kind of uh, was yeah. done in the news and similarly the and and a decade or so earlier how film criticism was 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 radicalised like I I've got the New York New Yorker book of the forties and yeah. you look at how film reviews are just different then they were quite informational. And the idea of, of actual film criticism being almost an art form in itself hadn't really kicked in, even though Patrick Gavin was a film critic and yes. he tried it. He tried it. And it, I suppose possibly the publication only went so far with the, I think we, ha- we haven't reached that stage of podcast journalism yet with yeah. writing Our about podcasts. Fucking Tom Wolfe, man. The journalist <laughs> Tom Wolfe in the 60s, like he completely revolutionised how we thought about about journalism as such. It's like, I'm going I'm to write journalism that feels like narrative fiction. Yeah. But you know what's interesting? And I found this out recently, kind of a an industry insider type thing. Yeah. The thing that's driving podcasts right now towards being so commercial is the big app companies such as Spotify or whoever has an app. Yeah. They're thinking about the next decade in terms of self-driving cars and electric cars. So the next space for competition for entertainment is going to be the self-driving car where you don't have to concentrate on the road and everything's electric and they want that dashboard to be where their app is. Now, we won't be able to watch anything, but we will be able to listen with a new degree of attention that you can't do when you're driving. So they're all fighting right now to go. I'm going to give 100 million to the Joe Rogan podcast so everyone gets that. And then in five years, when these self-driving cars become available, our app is going to be there. And this is the new... Because think of it like, podcasts exist because of, I think, the commute in the morning. Yeah. You put this thing on and you listen to it privately. And when yeah. you listen to a podcast privately, it's a different experience. It's not communal like radio. It doesn't have to please everyone around. You can listen to a podcast that says the word content it loads. And yeah. you don't have to be concerned about your kid listening or someone else on, on the bus. A bit like um, Fifty Shades of Grey. They say the reason Fifty Shades of Grey, the, the erotic novel, became so popular was because of the Kindle. Is people could read it privately on public transport. And podcasting is similar to that. We just talked about that on um, on our most recent episodes about romance novels and Ireland in them. And the two big Kindle hits, in addition to Fifty Shades, the other one, big one, was Mein Kampf. That, there was wow. a spike, spike in Mein Kampf sales yeah. when Kindles came in. Because no one wants to be, you don't want to be the fucker on the bus with mine, Cam. <laughs> you I'm not going to turn around to someone and say, I'm, I'm reading it critically, I disagree with him. Yeah. Just, no, not a <laughs> fucking chance. Maybe now, after after the past few years, it might be a different story. Maybe people might be more yeah. brazen about it. But back then, certainly it was still seen as, you know, like a, not a thing a person would do in the bus. Or they, I think people are probably even more brazen about that now, with the, sadly, the, the state we're in. But it is, and, and there's, yeah. a pri- there's a privacy around, around certain podcasts. There is a bit, uh, it can be a privacy around how we consume media. Like, hmm. when I'm writing my book, uh, so I can only write when I'm sitting in a cafe. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out, what the fuck is that about? Why can, I, why can I only dedicate five hours to just writing when I'm in a cafe? And what I realise is that when I'm at home, I'm my own distraction. So I might end up scrolling through Facebook or scrolling through Twitter. Yeah which is a private act. But I realised if I'm sitting in a coffee shop and I'm looking at another person's Facebook page, you yeah. look like a lunatic. Yeah. 
It's, and I don't know why, because like that's what you do when you're on Facebook. You look at another person's photos. But if I'm sitting there in a coffee shop, scrolling through someone's photos on a yeah. night out, I just look like a sociopath. So yeah. I simply don't <laughs> use social media when I'm out in a coffee shop. I just write my book. That's it. That's brilliant. No, that, that, I think because there was, you, 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 there often used to be a lot of slagging about the idea of, of, of the writer and the laptop in the cafe. People go, oh, why, do they have, why can they do it at home? And it's like, well, the, the actual, the workplace environment of, or the, pub, the public mm-hmm. nature of a cafe definitely facilitates that. Oh, hugely. Like, man, I haven't written in two years because I simply can't go to a cafe. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I've, I've a, a book deadline due and I, I can't write at home. I, I'm my own. Now, as well, and this is an interesting thing because my, my agent represents a lot of writers for like EastEnders and Coronation Street and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she told me that because those writers aren't engaging with the spontaneity of everyday life, yeah. simply going into a shop and speaking to someone, they have nothing to write about. Because the pandemic means that w- we haven't had a spontaneous conversation in public in two years because even when you meet someone that you know, all you're talking about is COVID or you're not empathising properly because you're thinking about social distancing or the mask. So yeah. I'm starved of an authentic, empathic connection with a human being. And I need that for whatever the fuck my brain does to come up with ideas. No, definitely. No, it's, I, you probably see that in some, some of the soap opera storylines that went through. But that's, um, that's a really interesting point. Because um, yeah. I, 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 a lot of people would have thought, oh, being um, the COVID would have given people an opportunity to write, but there isn't. That's that's no. not as simple at all. I'm, not I'm way at behind. All. I'm way behind. I'm third it's, book three as well. It's it's it is it, the spontaneity of life is is what uh, makes ideas happen. Like even even with my own podcast, I remember, like a podcast now takes me four or five days to write, and it takes a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. When I was 2019, I was doing my BBC series over in London, which meant I was working 12-hour days. I used to come home from a 12-hour day and literally lash out a podcast in an hour Mm -hmm. because the act of speaking to people all day and all that stimulation in my brain meant that I could lash out a podcast in an hour. I'm working all day long. My unconscious is doing the work. I'm staring at four fucking walls here. Nothing's happening. Gotcha. It's it's quite a thought. And... I could talk to you all day, but my boy, uh, this has been a really <laughs> fascinating chat. Uh, but before we wrap up, we um, we would love to ask all our guests what their favorite Irish word is. And um, but before that, we do that. Um, book three is going to be more short stories. Yeah, yeah, I'm, it's going to be more more short stories. So I don't know what it's going to be about. Uh, for me, when I write, I, I try try and achieve a state of flow where I just I sit down and I write, and it feels like a, a film is revealing itself to me. But I I adore the short story format. I just love that format and I'm going to continue doing it because I'm, I'm handy enough at doing it, you know. Definitely, you certainly are. And so before we wrap up, um, do you have a favourite Irish word? Yes, uh, gawal, which means junction because it mm. the, it means the, the word gaul. So in Limerick, we say gaul. Now, I know this is an Irish thing, but I always associate yeah. it with Limerick. And gaul, it can mean vagina and it can also just be an insult to someone but I always it's one of those words like yurt I'm like what the fuck is gaul yeah. and it's also one of those words where because you when I growing up you never saw it written down you didn't know how it was spelt you just heard it in people's mouths yeah. so we spelt I, I'd see it on bus stops such and such is a G-O-W-L and then years later I learned that there's an Irish word called, called gaval and we have in we've Limerick Junction gaval Limney 
Yeah. And I went, that's what goal is, man. It's the <laughs> junction between a pair of legs. So that's my favourite Irish word. Fantastic. And a great one too. Buy my book up. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Derek. God bless. So mind yourself and slam. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. I've only done it once now, but standing on a plug, standing on a plug <laughs> is, uh, I'd describe that as an existential level of pain.